0: In 1842, Kit Carson took his daughter Adeline by his late wife, the Arapaho girl Watanabe, to Missouri to be educated among his relatives. The girl was probably about five or six years old, and uh, since he was, was widowed by Watanabe's early death and childbirth, he really didn't have a way of caring for her in a manner that he thought was appropriate. So he took her back to, uh, to civilization to learn to read and write, and the trip was to prove the hinge of fate for Carson because it marked the beginning of a historical partnership. As Carson recalled, it had been a long time since I had been among civilized people. I arrived at the States, went and saw my friends and acquaintances, then took a trip to St. Louis. Remained a few days and was tired of remaining in settlements. Took a steamer for the upper Missouri, and as luck would have it, Colonel Fremont, then a lieutenant, was aboard the same boat. Now, John C. Fremont was an officer in the U.S. Army's Corps of Topographical Engineers, and he was the son-in-law of a very influential senator named Thomas Hart Benton, who was uh, very much an expansionist and a believer in American Empire, and he got his son in law a spot in a corps that was essentially an exploratory corps of the U.S. Army. Very small, but uh, in the 1840s, very important. And uh, Fremont was tasked with gaining a better understanding of the territories that were under U.S. jurisdiction, and as it turned out, some that weren't, and determining the viability of routes across the plains and mountains to the the wide Pacific Shore, and uh, his reports of his expeditions, which were heavily edited and and largely written by his wife Jessie Benton Fremont, turned out to be bestsellers, and and actually were used as guidebooks by immigrants along the the Oregon Trail. They really uh, they really boosted the whole idea of of moving west into the the territories of Oregon and California and and demonstrated that you can get there from here. Carson, uh, in 1842, was still casting about for work in the uh, post-fur trade era after the, the beaver trade had collapsed, and so he approached the young officer. As he recalled, I spoke to Colonel Fremont. "'informed him that I had been some time in the mountains "'and thought I could guide him to any point he wished to go. "'He replied that he would make inquiries "'regarding my capabilities of performing that which I promised. "'He done so. "'I presume he received favorable reports of me, "'for he told me that I would be employed. "'I accepted an offer of a $100 per month "'and prepared myself to accompany him.' And that uh, $100 per month was a a fairly decent salary, Um, heck, a lot more than he could make as a a post hunter, would calculate out to uh, about, let's see, about $36,000 a year salary in 2020 dollars, which isn't a lot, but uh, wasn't income taxed either, and uh, pretty good living for an ex-mountain man who really didn't have a whole lot of prospects. Now, I'm a believer in historians or historical storytellers, which is what I consider myself, letting folks know what their their biases are. So I'll tell you that uh, John C. Fremont is one of those historical figures that I've never really warmed up to much. He was a narcissist and a social climber who often displayed impulsiveness and poor judgment to the point of recklessness. Nevertheless, Kit stuck with him loyally, and he guided... Fremont's first three expeditions, which happened to be the most successful ones. The fifth one was a total disaster, almost ended up in a, in a Donner Party kind of situation. But that's outside the scope of our story. And uh, most importantly, Carson followed him as, as that uh, Scots-Irish great captain and, uh, and believed in him. And Fremont's reports which, as I just noted, uh, were heavily edited and spruced up by by Jesse Benton Fremont, became national bestsellers, which made Kit Carson a celebrity mountaineer and scout and made a career for him. Um, As readers of my blog at Frontier Partisans know, I often say that history is capricious, and uh, there's plenty of frontiersmen who led remarkable lives and had incredible adventures, and they've either faded off into obscurity or never made it into the record at all, and uh, while others, sometimes less deserving, became famous. Now, Kit Carson obviously was deserving of his of his fame and renown, but uh, it could have gone a different way had he not met up with John C. Fremont on that steamer headed for the Ever Missouri. So the, first, Fre- the uh, first Fremont expedition was of, of modest scope um, and uh, really just kind of exploring out into the into the plains and was was highly successful. Carson was uh, not just a guide; he was also a hunter for the expedition, which uh, must have brought him joy because he truly enjoyed that uh, that occupation. And uh, he was noted for bringing in fat cow instead of poor bull when he went out to hunt the buffalo, and he knew the difference, which was uh, that that sort of a, a mountain man tag, a man who who knew fat cow from poor bull, knew what he was doing, and uh, that notation was was made by Fremont's cartographer, who was a, a exceedingly cranky Prussian uh whose first name was anglicized to Charles, but it uh, was Carl Preuss, Uh and I may have butchered the the pronunciation if I did, please let me know. But uh Preuss generally disdained Kit Carson and American frontiersmen in general thought of them as, as basically barbarians. But he really did enjoy that fat cow. So he commented on that and uh and I get a kick out of that. So uh Fremont's first expedition was not uneventful, but uh, not especially dramatic either and, uh, and highly successful. And uh, Carson fulfilled his contract and then returned to Taos, New Mexico, where he had other business waiting, namely getting married. Kit married a very young Hispanic New Mexican woman, Named Josefa Hamarillo on February 6, 1843, and uh, he had apparently, or she had caught his eye apparently, some months before that, and uh, and Carson made his intentions very clear by converting to Roman Catholicism, which was a prerequisite of marriage for the Hispanic population of New Mexico. And uh, one imagines his Presbyterian minister grandfather rolling in his grave. Um, it's an it, it's an interesting phenomenon that the, the Scots Irish were were so ardently Protestant, and uh, in Northern Ireland they they fought bitter, bloody battles with the Irish Catholics, and uh, they retained. That religiosity when they they crossed the Atlantic to the Americas, but uh, when their progeny headed west and especially into the Southwest, into Texas and and the New Mexico Territory, they didn't hesitate to convert to Catholicism if that was what was necessary to marry into respectable Hispanic families and to attain land grants and. Uh, and become a part of that society. So Carson uh, converted to Catholicism. Now there's an aspect of this marriage that's pretty startling to to modern eyes. Kit was 33 when he married Josepha, and she was a month shy of her 15th birthday. And That raises eyebrows, to say the least, in in a modern context. But it has to be understood that that was quite common in every culture of which Carson was a part. It was common in the Hispanic culture of the New Mexico Territory. It was common in the southern backcountry culture that he came from, Scots-Irish culture. Uh, Daniel Boone's daughter, Jemima, was married at 16. His daughter, Susanna, at 15. Uh, so, then those are, are just a couple of examples. And uh, it was also common amongst the, the native peoples of the Plains and the Rocky Mountains. Mark Simmons, in his fantastic book, Kit Carson and His Three Wives, A Family History, addresses this issue. He talks about how initially, apparently, Josefa's parents took a dim view of the marriage to, to Carson and that may have not had much to do with him personally. Uh, they, the, the New Mexican Hispanics were nervous about, uh, about their daughters being abandoned by these American fur trappers who might just return to the States. Um, the conversion to Catholicism was, was a big step, uh, a gesture of good faith for, for Carson. But uh, Simmons addresses this, uh, this age issue, I think, quite well. One might assume that the large differences in age between Kit and Josefa would have exacerbated any hostilities the parents might have originally felt toward him. After all, Josefa was a month away from 15 on her wedding day, while her new husband, at age 33, was 18 years her senior. But for the Hamarias, that was evident- evidently not an issue. Among Southern Europeans, including Spaniards, the marriage age for a woman was often exceedingly young. Ramón Gutiérrez reports that in the late colonial period, one out of four New Mexico women were married by the time they reached 15. Large age gaps between spouses were not that exceptional in Hispanic New Mexico either, nor for that matter in the Old South to which Carson traced his own origins. And, of course, in his Mountain Man period, he knew numbers of trappers who had married Indian girls much their junior. Among them was his good friend Thomas Fitzpatrick, married at the mature age of 51 to a teenage Arapaho girl. So this is another example of one of those cultural aspects that we have to be careful to avoid presentism in regards to. uh, Something that to modernize and in our culture is really unacceptable that was common practice in the culture and the time that we're exploring. It's also worth noting that Kit and Josefa's marriage was a long and fruitful and apparently very devoted one. And uh, as we'll see in, uh, as we delve further into this story, they died just a month apart. Um, It was not an easy marriage for Josepha because Kit was, for large parts of the marriage, hardly ever home. Uh, It's another very characteristic frontier story where you have a very devoted family man who was hardly ever around his family. And that started just six months into their, their marriage, Kit was at Ben's Fort along the Arkansas River when he heard that Fremont was camped 75 miles away, uh, leading a second expedition. And Kit decided that uh, he would go and visit his, his old chief. And, uh... <laughs> Uh, I don't really believe what he said about it, but uh, uh, we'll we'll let him have his say. My object was not to seek employment. I only thought that I would ride to his camp and then return. But when Fremont saw me again and requested me to join him, I couldn't refuse, and again entered his employ as a guide and hunter. Now, you know, as I say, I, I, I find that a little bit... Uh, a little bit hard to believe. maybe he convinced himself that uh, he really meant to stay home with Josefa, but what could he do? You know the call of duty was was there. Um, you know, I, th- I think that uh, that being a, f- a fiddle foot was, uh, or having a roving foot was as big of a, a factor in that as, as any sense of duty. But in any case, he signed back up with Fremont and Josefa would not see him again until he returned home in July of 1844. Fremont's second expedition was much grander in scope than his first, and a whole lot more arduous. Um, For some reason, he insisted on hauling a bronze 12-pounder mountain howitzer along, which... uh, was supposedly to overawe the Indians, but my own sense—and again, I'm a bit of a harsh judge of, of Fremont—but I suspect that it appealed to his vanity and made him feel more like a a military commander than just a glorified surveyor. But uh, in any case, they hauled this bronze howitzer along through some incredibly rough terrain and. Uh, We'll talk a little bit about the uh, the fate of that howitzer uh, a little further down the trail, but uh, that's always stuck out in my mind as as an interesting little piece of uh, of vainglory. The expedition trekked into the Oregon Territory, which was jointly held between Britain and the U.S., and down through Central Oregon, which is my home stomping grounds, and into the Great Basin. And one of the missions that uh, that Fremont was very determined to fulfill, was to determine if there was a so-called Rio Buenaventura running from the Rocky Mountains to the sea. And uh, spoiler alert, there was not. I've traveled and explored some of the areas that the expedition crossed and camped near where they camped in Soldier Meadows near the, the hot springs there. That's now a ranch that is believed to be the most remote spot from a paved road in the continental United States. And uh, again, as I mentioned in in the previous episode about the mountain, man, I'm just awed by the terrain that they crossed by horse and mule and sometimes on foot. Uh, A friend of mine, Craig Rollman, and I camped near Soldier Meadow just couple hundred yards from where Fremont and Carson camped there. And, and we got absolutely hammered by a sleet storm that just blew up in the space of a couple of hours and, and, and hit us at about two o'clock in the morning and turned our camp into a rummage sale. And, uh, you know, we managed to retrieve our gear and, and get, uh, get into the truck and, and spend a, Somewhat unpleasant night, getting pounded by that sleet storm. But uh, you know, one of the first things that we we talked about in the morning when we staggered out of the, the the cab was, you know, those guys didn't have the luxury of of a controlled environment to retreat into, and they were exposed to those elements. And just imagining getting caught in a storm like that with your your tents blowing all across the desert, and and your horses and your mules spooking, and it sort of gives you a, a little bit of a of a taste of what life was like for those uh, those men, and a real respect for for the level of, of fortitude that they that they displayed. So, and speaking of fortitude, the expedition was. Uh, in the Great Basin in February, with a, a tough choice to make, um, you know, head east across the desert where there was virtually no forage for their horses, which were in really deplorable condition and probably wouldn't survive it, or cross the Sierra Nevada in February and head into California. Now, some folks believe that. Fremont really wanted to go into California, that part of his mission was to to spy on Mexican California. Um, I don't believe that that's actually the case in the second expedition. I think that uh, they really didn't have a a viable option, but uh, the choice of going over the Sierra Nevada in the middle of winter wasn't a particularly viable option either, and it, it could have ended up disastrously. The Washoe Indians that they consulted with kind of shook their heads and said, don't do it. They warned him that uh, it was rock upon rock and snow upon snow. So they crossed in what is now the Toyonabe National Forest and somewhere along the line there, they finally were forced to abandon that damn howitzer which is still out there waiting discovery, and uh, there's there's hikers and treasure hunters who would would just love to find that that howitzer, but that's probably down in some crevasse somewhere. Um, certainly, it is it is yet eluded anybody's discovery. Uh, in this case, Carson undoubtedly saved Fremont's expedition. He was able to find forage for the animals and the safest route of passage through the mountains. In one episode, he pulled Fremont from a freezing river where he'd fallen and and would have either drowned or frozen to death. And and somehow, by hook or by crook, they managed to crest the Sierra Nevada without anybody dying, and uh, Carson realized that he was... uh, headed into territory that he had first explored with Ewing Young back in 1829-31, and he remembered it well. He uh, he spotted Mount Diablo and recognized it 15 years down the road. So the expedition staggered down the west slope of the Sierra into the Central Valley of California and rested, rested up, and then uh, Travel down that central valley and uh, to cross the Mojave Desert. And you'll recall that basically they were, were retracing the route that the Ewing Young expedition had taken uh, more than, than 10 years before. And uh, it was terrain that Carson knew intimately and a route that he was familiar with and a route that he would uh, take several more times. And out there on the Mojave Desert, Carson and his compadre, a French-Canadian hunter named Alexis Gaudy, had an encounter with Paiute Indians that is an excellent example of the kind of incident that can be looked at in two very different ways depending on what kind of light you want to cast on it. And uh, Robert M. Utley, in his Life Wild and Perilous, Takes up the incident. In the Mojave Desert, the Fremonters encountered the first of sporadic Indian troubles. On April 24th, two Mexicans, a man and a boy, came into camp with a woeful tale. They belonged to a party of six, including two women, who had traveled in advance of a caravan of traders, still in Fremont's rear, headed for Santa Fe on the old Spanish trail. Paiute Indians had swept down on the camp and butchered the occupants. The two survivors, mounted and on horse guard, escaped. They asked for help in retaking the horses. Fremont called for volunteers. Carson and Gaudy stepped forward, expecting others to join them. When none did, they set forth on their own. The next afternoon, announced by a war whoop, the pair stormed back into camp, driving the horses before them and with two bloody scalps dangling from Gaudy's rifle barrel. They had trailed the quarry, stealthily taken position near four lodges in the horse herd, and at dawn charged into the camp. A volley of arrows greeted them, but the occupants fled, except for two struck down by bullets from the attackers' rifles. Fremont considered the feat, quote, "...among the boldest and most disinterested which the annals of Western adventure so full of daring deeds can present." As for Preuss, quote, "...to me such butchery is disgusting." a reaction he had caused to soften when he and the others reached the scene of the massacre. The men had been horribly mangled, and the women had been carried off as captives. So there you have it, dating all the way back to the 1840s. You have Kit Carson as either the defender and avenger of the innocent, or a butcher. That dichotomy of views obviously continues on to this day, and it really kind of frames how we look at frontier history in general, so the Fremont second expedition made it back to Bent's form in time to celebrate the Fourth of July, and Carson returned to his young bride, whom he hadn't laid eyes on in more than a year. It would seem that Kit was genuinely feeling a pang for having left his young wife for so long and and a real yearning to settle down and, and put down some kind of, of roots. Josefa um, was truly a beautiful and poised and lovely young woman, and here Carson was, highing off across the continent to have adventures and and leaving her at home with her family, but nevertheless without her husband. So he seems to have decided it was time for that all to, to stop, and he and a friend, Dick Owens, found a spot to establish a ranch. And this attempt at domesticity lasted all of six months, and you can probably predict what's coming. Hearing that Fremont was at Bent's Fort, Carson and Owens both took off and, uh, and signed on for a third expedition, and this time... Josefa wouldn't see him again for two years. And that expedition got underway in August of 1845. So I need to pause here to sort out the timeline. I made a boneheaded error at the top of episode one and gave an entirely incorrect date for the Klamath Indian attack on Fremont and Carson's camp in Oregon. That incident took place in 1846, not 1845. And our trail will lead back to that bloody business in a little bit. But I wanted to acknowledge the error here. Otherwise, the timeline for the third expedition doesn't make any sense. So my apologies for the error, which is corrected in the uh, episode one show notes. Fremont's third expedition is the one that is most likely to have had a covert military and political purpose, as well as the overt geographical one. This was the era when the U.S. was in the grip of, of manifest destiny. From the very beginning, there was always an element of this notion that the United States should expand from sea to shining sea. But it wasn't really until the 1840s that it became an ideology, and that ideology was defined as, as manifest destiny. It was the, the American destiny to settle the continent, and uh, regardless of who else had claims there, um, Mexico, Great Britain, and least of all, the native peoples that had had lived there from time immemorial. James K. Polk was elected president with continental ambitions, and he was willing to fight Great Britain over Oregon and or fight Mexico over Texas and California. It seems likely that Fremont's third expedition somehow played into Polk's schemes, but it's really hard to ascertain exactly what he was doing. Um, His instructions were to explore the eastern drainage of the Rocky Mountains and down the Arkansas River, and instead he headed straight for California. As Utley says, Allowing even the most expansive interpretation of what Fremont believed his government expected of him, his course in the early months of 1846 is hard to make sense of. His habit of going where and doing what he pleased, his exaggerated sense of both national and personal honor, his inflated ego, his ethnocentric contempt for native Californians, and perhaps even confused uncertainty all may have played a part. No one has ever convincingly uncovered his motives. California in the early months of 1846 was a, a very tense place. It was a province of Mexico, and the Mexicans were fully aware that their big strapping neighbor to the north had its eye on her territories. And to make matters even more complicated, the Californios, the, the native Californians of Mexican and Spanish Descent were starting to get pretty restive. They considered the Mexican government out of touch and way too distant to manage California well, and were seeking greater autonomy. And uh, they were also dealing with a ever increasing number of immigrants from the United States uh, who were were settling in California illegally, and. Uh, So Fremont entered California for a second time into a situation that was kind of on a hair trigger. And he was high-handed and confrontational and got himself into a tense standoff with uh, a general named Jose Castro, who uh, he insulted. Fremont insulted Castro. And Castro ordered him to leave California immediately. And Fremont had it in his head to make a a glorious stand and fortified a camp at Gavilan Peak in the Salinas Valley in Central California. And uh, there was a standoff that could have ended up in in sparking a shooting war. But uh, Fremont was sorely outnumbered and his outfit was really still an exploratory expedition and and not really militarily equipped for a fight and Fremont seemed to to eventually get that through his head and when the American flagpole fell down at their fortified camp uh, he decided that this was an omen and he agreed to pull out without any shots being fired and uh Lucky for him because that would have probably precipitated war and it almost certainly would have ended up with his command being wiped out. So Fremont uh, and Carson and the rest headed north toward Oregon and on their way they stopped at Lassen Ranch in the Sacramento Valley. And settlers there, both Californios and American settlers, were in uh, considerable fear of an Indian attack, they had uh, numerous raids and and horse theft incidents, and they were convinced that the the Wintu people were gathering and preparing to attack the settlements and perhaps wipe them out. Fremont gave his men permission to volunteer for a preemptive strike against the uh, the Wintu at a rancheria near uh, present day Redding, California. He. Uh, he couldn't lead an expedition as an official American military command. So, again, he, he allowed his men to volunteer in this sort of civilian militia strike against the Wintu. And this was the kind of action that Carson had been experienced in since he rode with Ewing with Young. And so the American settlers and the Fremont volunteers rode upon this to village and uh, immediately attacked them. And Carson recalled the engagement. The number killed I cannot say. It was a perfect butchery. Those not killed fled in all directions and we returned to Lassen's, had accomplished what we went for, and given the Indians such a chastisement that it would be long before they ever again could feel like attacking the settlements. This is another one of those actions that you just can't pretty up. And I don't think Carson is trying to do so. I think his description of a quote-unquote perfect butchery is far from celebratory of the action. I think he's describing what, to his eyes, was an ugly but necessary preemptive strike. Whether that's true or not is is impossible to say it at this remove. There's every possibility that uh, some of the the Wintu were acting on their own, not as a as a nation or a people, but just as individuals, raiding the settlements for purposes of of theft, mostly of of livestock. Um, and it's also highly likely that the settlers, based on their prejudices and the experiences of more than a, a century of Indian warfare assumed that those raids and thefts were indicative of hostility from the entire tribe and, uh, and that their sense of, of being threatened was, was genuine, whether it was, was actual Or not. And, uh, and that's kind of the way frontier partisan warfare rolled out. Um, it has to be said that, uh, and I think I mentioned this in the, the episode on, on Carson's years as a mountain man, that, uh, after the gold rush in California, attacks that were completely indefensible on California Indians became very common and, uh, the, the native peoples were severely reduced to um, a, a degree that, that really legitimately could be considered ethnic cleansing or even even genocidal. I don't know that this attack uh, on the Wintu falls into that category, but certainly it was an ugly and brutal episode, and I don't think anybody, including Kit Carson, would argue that. So after this punitive or preemptive raid, Fremont's command headed back north into Oregon, and they established themselves in camp near Klamath Lake. And that's where Lieutenant Archibald Gillespie of the United States Marine Corps found them on the night of May 8, 1846. Gillespie's story is... A remarkable one, an incredible one, really, and it remains shrouded in mystery to this day. Um, the secretary of the navy had summoned the 33-year-old first lieutenant of Marines who had been serving aboard a 44-gun named frigate named the uh, Brandywine on a two-year cruise in the Orient, and uh, Gillespie. Gillespie was a sickly man, and and at the time was in ill health. And he was looking for an easy berth on shore. And what he got instead was orders that sent him on this epic trek across Mexico, um, from Veracruz to the Pacific coast of, of Mexico, then across the ocean to Hawaii and then back to the Pacific shore where he landed in California and headed North to find Fremont. Um, His primary qualifications for his his mission were uh, strong facility with the Spanish language and that Marine's dedication to accomplishing his mission despite any obstacles of time and distance and and his own poor health. And uh, he traveled under the cover of being a merchant of Scotch whiskey. And it seems evident that uh, part of the mission was to sort of take the temperature of Mexico, and uh, and he certainly did that. Um, at the top of his, his mission, President Polk met with his secret agent, and he noted in his diary, "...I held a confidential conversation with Lieutenant Gillespie of the Marine Corps about 8 o'clock p.m. on the subject of a secret mission on which he was about to go to California." His secret instructions and the letter to Mr. Larkin, U.S. Consul at Monterey in the Department of State will explain the object of his mission. We don't know what that mission was. We're assuming spying in Mexico, and we know that he linked up with Fremont. So the precise outline and object of his mission remains unknown, but it's not too hard to infer from the actions that they sparked. So that night in May of 1846, Gillespie and Fremont stayed up late talking about whatever it was that uh, Gillespie had, had brought to Fremont in the way of secret orders. And that is when the Klamath Indians attacked in the episode that I described at the beginning of episode one. Turning in late, Fremont did not set a guard. And sometime in the early hours of May 9th, the Klamath Indians attacked the camp. And as I described, a Klamath chieftain hatcheted Basilonginus to death. And two Delaware Indian hunters were also killed. And Carson was terribly enraged by the loss of his companions, as as was the rest of the expedition. And uh, subsequently, Fremont and Carson and the others headed out to get some payback from the Klamaths. There's some, ex, uh, some interesting speculation as to the motive for the attack and even for who perpetrated it. Some speculate that the Klamaths may have had word of the American attack on the Wintu and were making a preemptive attack of their own. Uh, I have read some accounts that speculate that the Indians were not Klamaths at all and were actually Modocs who had followed Gillespie to Fremont's camp, which I, I, I've only seen that in one source, and I'm not, uh, I'm not sure where that comes from, and I, I kind of doubt it. My belief is that the attackers were in fact Klamaths and that the attack was, was probably simply motivated by the fact that the explorer's camp was a tempting target. It was full of arms and equipment and supplies, and it's not as though these kinds of, of incidents were uncommon. Um, Jedediah Smith, the great mountain man and explorer of the 1820s, had uh, his party had been attacked and nearly wiped out on the Umqua River. Smith and a companion had been away from the camp hunting and thus survived the attack, but this was a, a famous incident and that it occurred 20-some-odd years before the attack at Klamath Lake. So over the next couple of days, Fremont and Carson led their men in some bloody revenge attacks on the Klamaths, and they killed some 14 men and uh, apparently one woman. And after they'd glutted their revenge... They turned south and headed back to California with Lieutenant Gillespie in train. And uh, Fremont's recollections, now bearing in mind that that these were written down well after the event, but uh, Fremont's recollections give an indication of exactly what he conceived his mission to be. The information through Gillespie had absolved me from my duty as an explorer, And I was left to my duty as an officer of the American army with a future authoritative knowledge that to obtain possession of California was the chief object of the president. One of the great geopolitical coups of the 19th century was underway and Kit Carson was in the thick of it. We'll cover Kit Carson's transition from hunter and explorer and frontier partisan warrior to American soldier in our next episode and if you enjoy this kind of history i'd encourage you to stop by the campfire at www.frontierpartisans.com and if you're interested in dropping a few peltries to support the podcast and the blog uh, there is a gofundme page linked at frontierpartisans.com and i will soon be creating a patreon page for those interested in in offering some ongoing support and uh obtaining some extra content that i'll be creating for that patreon page i'd like to offer a special shout out to a few folks who have really helped to make this podcast possible uh, rick shortfager uh, my compadre from the southern command down in in the republic of texas mia Amiga chris converse from here in central oregon and my trail riding compadre, Craig Rollman, also here in Central Oregon. I appreciate their support very much. I appreciate you all joining us on this trail, and uh, thanks for stopping by the campfire.